We've been spending the last several weeks, as, as you know, learning from the stories that grew out of that generation that was called to rebuild the city of Jerusalem following nearly a, a, a century of destruction. And as we've done that over the last few weeks, we've looked at the characteristics of the rebuilders, especially those six biblical characters that we know the most about. We've looked at how God used their abilities, their unique abilities to lead the rebuilding efforts. We've talked about some of the most important steps in rebuilding. We talked about walking among the ruins. We talked about the importance of prayer. We've acknowledged that rebuilding is not easy. It comes with opposition. And there are many obstacles to overcome if one is going to become a rebuilder. And all the while, we've acknowledged that there's application here for anyone who senses some aspect of life is in ruin. When we see ruins, we can rebuild. Uh, some aspect of life is in ruin. Perhaps you're recognizing something in your personal life or relationships, something in your spiritual life. And in addition to that, we've taken note that the church in America is going to need to rebuild. We are entering a season, we are already into a season of rebuilding because there are structures and there are methods for ministry that have broken down this year. There is work to be done. Today, what I want to do is propose that it is not just about the work to be done. This isn't just about work to do. Rather, the commitment to rebuild can and should be an act of worship rather than just a job to do. I want us to see rebuilding as worship. But first, I feel like I need to take just a few moments and clarify what I mean by worship. We use the word worship as it pertains to church an awful lot. And in our culture, in our society, usually when we say worship, at some level we're referring to the music. We're referring to the music that we sing or the music that we play in church. We kind of generically refer to it as worship. Sometimes we get a little bit more specific and we say the fast songs are the praise songs and the slow songs are the worship songs. I don't think that's a very useful definition, but we do tend to refer to music. For instance, the first 15 years of my career in ministry, uh, my, my job title was worship leader. And what that meant is I was the music leader. I, I was a song leader. I, I led the music because in the way we talk about it, worship equals music. But that's not really a very accurate or useful definition of worship, at least the way the Bible describes it. Worship often involves music, of course, but it is not defined by music. They are not equal. Music actually isn't even entirely essential to worship. We can worship without music. And so we need to refine this definition a little bit. In the Bible, worship describes a much broader experience than just music. It is something God's people most often do together. It's, it's the reason that they come together. Actually, it's the primary reason that the people of God gather together. Did you know that's the primary reason that you're here today or that you've logged on, that you're with us online, however it is 
The primary reason that we have gathered together, according to Scripture, is to worship. It's not the sermon. What I'm doing now is not the primary reason that you came here today. It's not fellowship. It's not the connections. It's not learning something new about God. It's not even, no offense, missions or evangelism. Those are all important things, but none of them is primary. The primary reason God's people gather together is to worship. And we could talk about this for hours and hours and days and days and weeks and weeks. I will spare you that. But let me just say this, and I'm going to put this summary on the screen this way. Worship is the intentional act of focusing on and responding to God's presence with awe, humility, and sacrifice. Now, that's not any sort of official definition. It's something that I hammered out specific to this sermon. I studied what others have said about worship. Pastor Garrett and I got together late this week, and and he helped me refine some of these words. But uh, you you can jot that down and use this for when I talk about worship today. This is what I'm talking about. Worship is the intentional act of focusing on and responding to. God's presence, and how do we respond to it? With awe, humility, and sacrifice. Let me break that down just for a second. I said it's an intentional act. Nobody worships by accident. Nobody says, whoops, I'm worshiping, and I didn't even realize. It isn't, worship isn't, and and this maybe is contrary to how we think about it. Worship isn't something that we wait for. We don't wait to get the warm fuzzies, like, I don't know if I'm in worship today. I don't know if I'm going to worship. You know, oh, look at me. I'm worshiping a little bit. I'm worshiping a little bit. Oh, it's coming. It's coming. And we have worship. There it is. There it is. We don't wait for it to happen that way. It's not something that we hope for. We choose to worship. It is an intentional act. It's an intentional act of focusing on God's presence. This is very important. God is the central character in worship. We should never come away from the worship experience more impressed with the musicians or more impressed with the speakers than we are impressed by God. God is the central character in the worship experience. We choose to focus on him, but we don't just focus on him. I said we also respond to his presence. This is important. Worship is a verb. It is an action word. There is action and response in worship. We have to be doing something when we worship. Now, some people by nature are very demonstrative in their worship. Hallelujah, glory, glory, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. (sighs) Some people are a little bit more stoic and staid in their worship. And look, Either one of those is okay, right? I'm all about it. Different strokes, different folks. That's okay. But no one just stands and watches. This is not a spectator sport. Worship is a verb. Everyone who worships in some way is actively responding to the presence of God. And how do we respond to the presence of God? I give you three words there. Awe. Our primary takeaway from the worship experience is, wow, God is big. Wow, God is big. It's how big God is. We should be in awe. In the Bible, we're told that someday everyone will worship. We actually sang those words in one of our songs this morning. Every knee will bow. 
Every tongue will confess. Do you know that's not because everyone is going to decide that God is the coolest, right? And, and, and they're okay. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to get converted. It means that one day, even those who are in rebellion are going to stand back and be amazed at the awesomeness of the one against whom they have been in rebellion. One day, everyone will realize just how big he is. Humility. The biblical word for worship in in both the Old and New Testaments, that word carries with it the connotation, the literal meaning of bowing down on your knees with your face touching the ground. If you picture a Middle Easterner today on their carpet in worship, it's that posture that's being referenced by the word that we have in our Bibles today. Now, in our culture in America, that's not a physical posture that we use too often, but I think it's still a very, very good word picture for what worship needs to look like. Worship cannot happen if the worshipers are the ones getting the glory. There's humility in worship. There are no celebrities in worship, okay? And then the last word I gave you was sacrifice. And maybe this is the one that we overlook too often, but worship never happens without some sort of reference to sacrifice. In the ancient cultures, we know that people practiced literal sacrifice on the altars. There were burnt offerings of livestock and of grain and of other things of value. For Christians, This kind of a practice stopped when we understood Jesus to be the ultimate and everlasting sacrifice. But think about this in our worship services today. We still, by God's directive and command, we still sacrifice. Communion reenacts and recalls the sacrifice that Jesus made. Baptism in water by immersion is meant specifically to reenact the sacrifice of Jesus, the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. We reenact that sacrifice. We pass the plate, or at least we used to before COVID. And we, we give offerings. We are instructed by the word to give sacrificially of, of our finances and of other things. And the New Testament, most importantly, invites us in worship to offer what it calls spiritual sacrifices up to and including what Paul in the book of Romans would call yourselves as a living sacrifice. Worship involves sacrifice. And so that's why I say to you today, worship is the intentional act of focusing on and responding to God's presence with awe, humility, and sacrifice. I'm going to say worship a whole bunch in the next 20 minutes or so. And when I say it, I don't want you to think the music that we sang this morning. I want you to think about this act of of focus and response. I believe that the ancient rebuilders did that as they rebuilt Jerusalem. Let's look at their picture again. We have these six characters from left to right. Zerubbabel, Joshua, uh, Zerubbabel, the kind of the governor who was sent back. Joshua, the high priest who was sent back. They get it started. And then we see the appearance of, of Haggai, the elderly prophet, and his young apprentice, Zechariah. Love Zechariah there. And then later on, we get Ezra, the historian and the scribe, and his sidekick, Nehemiah, the, uh, the connected man from back in Persia who finishes the project up. These are the six characters, and we look at their stories and learn what it's like to be a rebuilder. The first thing that I've learned about worship as I've studied the stories of these rebuilders 
is that we can worship while we rebuild. We can worship while we rebuild. It can happen as the rebuilding is happening. Ezra was the historian of the group. He tells us that when Zerubbabel and Joshua arrived in Jerusalem, everything was in ruins. And and last week I told you a little bit about that part of the story, how Zerubbabel and Joshua decided that the first thing, the priority, the first thing that they wanted to do was to build the altar. And they did that. They built the altar before they even built the temple that the altar was in. They rebuilt the altar because they wanted to encourage the people to worship. And they needed an altar in order to do that. The Bible says that as soon as the altar was ready, the people began using it for worship. Despite the fact that literally nothing else in the city had been rebuilt yet. As soon as the altar was ready to go, the worship started happening because we can worship while we rebuild everything, right? Ezra chapter 3 verse 6 records this. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple hadn't even been laid yet, is what it says. The first day of the seventh month sounds like July 1st to us. You guys know that the ancients didn't have the same calendar that we did, but we know how this works, and if you want to geek out, on me or on this with me or just geek out on me that would be fine too Uh, the first day of the seventh month is september 26th in the year 539 bc put that in your google calendar and celebrate it this year september 26th 539 bc the rebuilders began offering sacrifices for the very, very first time they began worshiping it was an important date because for them that was actually new year's day It was New Year's Day. It was the holiday that the Israelites then and now referred to as Rosh Hashanah. And beginning on that day, worship was happening. But look at the very next verse. It's not on the screen. Let me just read it to you. I read you verse 6 of chapter 3. Let me read you the very next verse, verse 7. It says, then, in other words, after that happened, after they started worshiping together, then they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. Are you catching that? We're already worshiping and they hadn't even bought the construction materials yet. They hadn't even paid the Teamsters yet. They didn't have their building permits yet. They didn't have any of that, but they were already worshiping because you can worship while you rebuild. And when those materials finally did arrive, well, then they laid the, t- uh, the, the foundations for the temple building. And you know what they did? They worshiped again. They worshiped some more. Later on, Ezra tells us that time they used trumpets. They used cymbals. There was singing and there was shouting. Verse 11 of chapter 3 tells us one of the songs that they sang had this line repeating in it. He is good and his love toward Israel endures forever. We, We sang a little bit of that this morning, didn't we? He is good and his love toward Israel endures forever. Joshua and Zerubbabel chose to build the altar first because they knew that you can worship while you're still rebuilding. Actually, I think they believed that you should worship while you're still rebuilding. And we may recognize that the things that God is calling us to rebuild are still broken down. There are still ruins in our lives. There is still work to be done. But as we are faithful in rebuilding, we can and should remain faithful 
in worship. In other words, I might still be walking among the rubble and the ruins. Maybe there's just a glimpse of a new foundation, but my song should be like Israel's song. I'm going to change the words, but it should be, he is good and his love toward Dan endures forever. There may still be rubble in my life, but that's my song. He is good and his love toward Dan endures forever. I don't do this often, but I'm going to ask you to repeat those words. Say, he is good. And say, his love toward me. Say your name. There you go. There you go. Endures forever. Say it again. He is good and his love toward Dan endures forever. That's the song. That's the worship chorus of a rebuilder. It doesn't mean the job is done. It means we're just getting warmed up here. But he is good and his love toward me endures forever. I think that's what rebuilding ought to look like. We should want to see. Rebuilding itself is an act of worship, an intentional response to the presence of God. Worship is something that rebuilders desire because worship highlights the joy in rebuilding. Ezra records the challenges of the next many years. We talked about those obstacles and oppositions last week. Uh, But they did ultimately finish the temple in Ezra because he's that historian. He marks the date for us. Uh, You can do the math here. The, The temple was finished on March 12th in the year 515. That's about 23 and one half years after the first worship service began. So they worshiped. And then for 23 and a half years, they continued to worship as they worked on that temple. And 23 and a half years later, the temple was finally done. What do you suppose they did? They had another worship service, right? Because it was rebuilding as worship. Ezra chapter six, this isn't the verse I have on the screen, but just verse 16 tells us, then the people of Israel celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy, right? That's the key word here. Worship worship highlights the joy in rebuilding. They celebrated the dedication with joy. There was more worship, a massive, joyful celebration involving everyone, involving the entire community, focusing on God and responding with joy to his awesome power and presence. And then somebody looked at their calendar and they realized that, hey guys, you know what's coming up? In about six weeks is Passover. Passover was the biggest celebration to the ancient Jews. It was kind of like our version of Christmas, the biggest holiday on the calendar. We think that at this point, the Israelites had not celebrated a Passover in probably a hundred years. Because of the exile, because of of their rebellion against God prior to that, it had been, as best we can tell, a, a century or so since these people had actually celebrated Passover. But they finished the temple, they put it together, they had a worship celebration, they celebrated with joy, and then somebody checked their calendar and said, oh my goodness. Passover's coming in six weeks. My great-grandpa used to tell me stories about what Passover was like. Do you think maybe we should? Do you think? Yeah, I think we should. I think we should. And so they decided to celebrate Passover together. Ezra chapter 6, verse 22 says, for seven days, that's how long Passover is, for seven days they celebrated, how did they celebrate? With joy, the festival of unleavened bread. Why? Because the Lord had filled them, there's the words again, with joy. Worship highlights the joy in rebuilding. Church, rebuilding is hard work. It is really, really hard work. Cleaning the land, setting the foundation, removing the rubble, salvaging the timbers, 
laying the brick. And the whole time you're doing those things, you're watching over your shoulder for enemies and for opponents who who might want to tear you down again. It's hard, hard work. But when the rebuilding is an act of worship, every one of those difficult tasks is undertaken with humility in the awesome presence of God. And so every bit of rubble that is cleared helps us focus on his presence, right? Let's clear the decks here so we can see what's important. Every bit of rubble that is cleared helps us joyfully focus on the presence of God. And every brick that is laying upon another becomes an intentional response to that awesomeness. And rebuilding itself becomes a celebration of worship. That's how I want to rebuild. Now, by now, you know the big picture of the stories of these six rebuilders. Their projects weren't completed in just a few days or just a few months. In fact, Jerusalem itself as a city was not secure until Nehemiah finally finished the walls. And that didn't happen until 95 years after Zerubbabel and Joshua finished the altar. It's almost a century, almost a full century of rebuilding. I want you to imagine that. Imagine all the ups and downs of a century-long project. It's kind of like road construction in the Chicago area, right? If all God's people did was just work, work, work during that entire time, they would have burned out long before they even reached a decade, much less a century. In order to persevere and be successful, they needed to see the rebuilding as one continuous act of worship. So for nearly a century, as they slowly rebuilt the city, they needed to be intentional, intentional about focusing on and responding to God's presence with awe, humility, and sacrifice. And when the project was finally over, when the last brick went up on Nehemiah's wall, Well, then they showed the world that worship celebrates the successes of rebuilding. It celebrates the successes of rebuilding. When Nehemiah finally finished with that wall, he planned a worship service that couldn't possibly have been a surprise to anybody because they had been worshiping together for 95 years, right? But he planned, okay, we're going to have one more blowout. We are going to celebrate the success of all of these rebuilding efforts. And so he got his buddy Ezra to be the, the worship leader for that worship service. And the Bible records in Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 6 that Ezra got up in front of everybody and Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and they responded, amen, amen. Clearly it was a Pentecostal worship service. Then they bowed down. There's that posture again, right? They bowed down and what did they do? They worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. That's what happened as this whole project was finally wrapping up 95 years later. When I was a little boy, I liked uh, model dinosaurs. When I was real little, that was, I'd get them for Christmas or my birthday. Dinosaur models, plastic that you could snap together and paint and decorate. And I collected, oh, I don't know, eight or 10 or 12 of them over the course of a couple of years. And I'd get help from mom or dad to build them and paint them and make them look real nice. And when I was done with them, I did not play with them. I put them on my dresser in my room. 
I set them up, and so right on the top of my dresser, there was a, an action scene of a T-Rex trying to fight a Stegosaurus and a Triceratops running away from this and that and the other thing. I had all of these model dinosaurs, and they just, they just kind of sat there so I could look at them. When I got a little bit older, by the time I was in junior high, I was full on into Legos and space Legos were always my favorite. I liked to buy the Legos and build the spaceships. And so I had gotten rid of my dinosaurs by that point, but replaced them with Lego spaceships that I would build uh, into just the perfect spaceship with lasers and, and, and things on it. And I put them on my dresser to admire them and look at them. I didn't play with my Legos, I admired my Legos. To this day, my mother teases me because I virtually never actually played with toys. I just put them together and looked at them. <laughs> I looked at them. If you're rebuilding just to rebuild, you might finish the project and think you've really made something nice. You might be tempted to stand back and just admire your handiwork. You might be pretty impressed with yourself, or you might just be focused on the beauty of the project that you have just completed. But that is not what happens when rebuilding is worship. I'm going to read that verse to you that I read just a moment ago. Again, Nehemiah, as he's describing that worship service upon the completion. Did you catch it? He said, then they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces on the ground. He doesn't say, then they bowed down and said, what a great temple this is. Woo, doggy, is it beautiful. What an amazing set of walls we have in this. Look at us, is there a finer city in all of the world? None of that happened. They didn't gaze at the project. They didn't admire their own handiwork. They didn't say, Nehemiah, would you come out? We need to give you just a round of applause. They didn't do any of that. They weren't focused on the project. They weren't focused on the rebuilders. Who were they focused on? They were focused on the Lord. Then they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord because after all, for 95 years, it was rebuilding as worship. And so he had been the center of it all from the beginning. From the beginning, he had been the center of it all. He was their focus. Their focus was God's presence and they intentionally responded to his presence, not their project, to his presence with awe and with humility and with sacrifice. They worshiped, they worshiped. And so today, if you're rebuilding, if you find yourself in the portrait somewhere, Zerubbabel, Joshua, Haggai, and there you are, right between Haggai and Zechariah. If you find yourself in the portrait of the rebuilders, I want to challenge you to see your journey as an act of worship rather than a task that needs to be accomplished. An act of worship rather than a task that needs to be accomplished. I want to challenge you to be intentional about noticing the presence of God in your life. Yes, there is still brokenness. I get it. There is still brokenness. There are still rubble. There are still ruins. But that doesn't mean God isn't at work. Amen? That doesn't mean God is absent. We serve a God who loves to walk among the ruins. It doesn't mean he is absent. He's there. Can you see him? If you find yourself in the picture, if you are a rebuilder today, I want to challenge you to be purposeful 
about then responding to that presence? Are you making time and space in your life, whatever that might look like, to stand in awe or to bow in humility, to say, I know I'm not done yet, but yet will I worship? Yet will I praise you? What role does sacrifice play in your life? Can you be a worshiper as a rebuilder? Rebuilding needs to be an act of worship. It needs to be an act of worship. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the calling. And God, first of all, together, gathered in unity today, being built together metaphorically as that temple, that house of God where your presence dwells. We want to affirm in one another that we have indeed been called. I look over this congregation today. I imagine those who are logged in and I see brothers and sisters in Christ. I see co-laborers in the gospel. I see holy teamsters who are ready to lay brick. If only you will call. If only you will direct. If only you will empower. Jesus, would you be the center? Would you be the center of this project? Would you be the center of it all? Would you be the one that we focus on? Would it be your presence that we acknowledge and respond to as we stand in awe, as we bow in humility, as we lay our sacrifice before you? Father, we pray that you would receive our rebuilding efforts as our act of worship today. May you be honored in every everything that we do. We ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Be blessed as you go from this day. Visit with Corey. He'll be in the back right there. If you have any questions for him, you can, uh, you can ask him and, and find out a little bit more about his ministry. God's blessings.